This episode's part of a special feature series on New York City and is a co-presentation with the Museum of the City of New York with generous support from the Rockefeller Brothers Fund. Find us at yourhometown.org or on your favorite podcast app. Just in my young neighborhood, I had 11 gangs to worry about. The Savage Skulls, the Black Skulls, the Savage Nomads, the Seven Crowns, the Seven Immortals, the Black Spades, the, blue, the Young Spades. You know, it was crazy. My world to me was, you know, playing on the block, but then you got Warren Glenn and Gregory going to jail. It seems like, okay, here's happiness, but you got all of this evil around us. So imagine being a kid. Not, I'm not in a gang, I don't sell drugs, I don't do none, I'm not DJing yet, I don't do none of that, I don't play ball. I'm a, I like to draw, and I like ice cream and safe stuff, I'm a straight A student, I'm obedient, I'm not doing nothing crazy. That was looked down upon, that wasn't cool, you know what I'm saying? The only time I saw somebody that was smart, educated, geeky, nerdy, and awkward that was badass was in the comic books. Where did you grow up is a question we're all asked, a lot. But the answer is never as simple as a place on a map, is it? It's about the kid inside of us and what happened to them there before we met the world and the world met us. I'm Kevin Burke and this is Your Hometown. This episode is what you might think of as number two in a double album on Daryl DMC McDaniels, one of the three founding members of the Hall of Fame hip-hop group Run DMC. But actually, you don't have to hear the other one at all to enjoy this one. Think of this one as an entirely different portrait of the very same guy who grew up in a neighborhood of New York City called Hollis, Queens. Now, while the other episode was more about that neighborhood, this one is about what went on in Daryl's very busy very fantastical brain. As he just said, when he was growing up, there were places he could go and places he couldn't go in Hollis, and his parents were strict about him being home at night. So that meant he had to look inside the walls of his room for a portal to another world that could compete with what the other kids were doing out in the street. To begin, McDaniel's household was all about work, hard work, and it started early in the morning. My mother would wake me up 5.30 to give me breakfast before she left to go to work. I would eat breakfast and go back to bed before I would walk to um, um, Catholic school, St. Pasco Baylon. And both of your parents had come from the South. Yeah. My Jacksonville, your Jacksonville, father, and your Florida. mother, South Carolina? Yeah, Oler. O-L-A-R, Oler, South Carolina, which is about two stoplights long. So they were part of the Great Migration, essentially. The yeah, my father came here when he was 14, and my mother came up here when she was 16. I know your father, oh. Byford, worked for the MTA, and he was a Korean War vet too, right? Yeah, yeah, he was in the Korean War, and he was a boy. He didn't drive the bus. He was a boiler man at the bus depots. Okay. He mowed his own lawn. He cut his own hedges. He painted his own house. So my life was always school. It's watching my mother and father work to have this house with a fence around it, with a beautiful lawn, 
paneling. <laughs> I remember paneling and little things like that, garden holes. Um, um, to have um, my father put an awning in the backyard so that when they had their little cookouts and stuff like that, they had a whole bunch of um, outside furniture. You know, the chairs and the tables and the umbrellas. Fourth of July, Christmas, New Year's, birthdays, they put on one hell of a celebration. That's why on the Christmas in Hollis record, I rhymed about it's Christmas time in Hollis, Queens. Mom's cooking chicken and collard greens, rice and stuffing macaroni and cheese. That happened every holiday, every birthday. What they couldn't give me daily, they gave me in an abundance on special occasion. So when I, when, if, when I look at them and look at everything they accomplished, they had this attitude that if you have an opportunity to make your situation better, you can't just go 100%. You got to go 200%. And the way things are, sometimes you won't get, your cup won't overflow, but there'll be something in your cup every day. So um, my home wasn't the Brady Bunch, but it was, it was lovely. We had a basement. First floor was the living room, kitchen, dining room, and porch. My room was on the second floor of the house, um, right next to my mother's, mother and father's room. I was in between my mother and father's room and the bathroom. They always had traffic coming back and forth. I don't know if they put me there on purpose. So when they would use the bathroom, they could look in and see what me and my brother was doing. Me and my brother shared a room. We shared a room up until he went to high school. Okay. I guess when he got to high school, he didn't want to be with me. But all through elementary school, we shared a room. And, um, and then we had an attic, a wide open attic. Since, since I was in kindergarten and my brother was in third grade, we amassed this huge collection of Marvel comic books. We had all the number ones, Spider-Man, Iron Man. We had the huge, my attic, which was about the size, no, a little smaller than, no, about the, probably about the size. Yeah, my attic was about probably a little, little smaller than this room from wall to wall filled Iron Man, Avengers, Defenders, Luke K. I mean, we had every Marvel comic books. So when I was in kindergarten, when I was able to walk with my brother, make sure you hold his hand, I was able to walk to the candy store with Alfred. And that, that was a, that before they had the rack of the magazines and papers and books. They had the turning thing where the comic books mm -hmm. was on, the, the revolving um, comic book stand thing. that And the drugstores had it too. You knew the lady, you knew the man, and the lady who ran the drugstore. I remember the drugstore was um, originally owned by an older white man, and the assistant was a young black lady. When the older white man retired, the lady, she took it over, and I mean, she took it over. For, 
I remember she owned it for like 15 years my whole childhood. So I'm in kindergarten, I can't even read, but I saw a Batman comic book and I used my nickel to get, I couldn't even read it, but I love looking at the pictures. The pictures, yeah. So that was the thing that got me to comic books. And then um, the reason why I was a good student is because I was always reading. So Sister Nazaire was mean. Meaner than the nun in the Blues Brothers movie. Now, <laughs> yeah. Sister Nazaire would uh -huh. beat you with an axe. Yep. But here's why <laughs> Sister Nazaire was mean. She would, now I know I'm not supposed to be reading my comic book during school time, but the only reason I'm reading my comic book during school time, I got it in the middle of my history book, on my Pimenshire book, so you don't see it. But she knew the only reason I'm doing that because I just finished my work. This is easy. And you're for acing me. everything. Because I'm right. You're straight A's. I'm reading, right. So Sister Nazaire would take my comic book and not give it back at the end of the day or not even give it back at the end of the year. But Mrs. Green and Sister Mary, Miss Florentino and Miss Regina would take my book during school time and at the end of the day, Daryl, here's your book back. Mm -hmm. Why? Because they put two and two together. This kid is reading all day. That's I'm not going to deprive him of that. He's not going to read. This is his gateway. The yeah. textbook. Let him read his comic book so he can ace the textbook. I remember running home from Catholic school to take off my school uniform so I could put on my play clothes and fit in. My mother said, put your play clothes on because she don't want me to ruin the uniform that she, I'm paying for you ass to go to school. Yeah. I'm paying for that uniform. I'm yeah. So she was like, don't play in your school clothes, my uniform. But I remember running home, not afraid of my mother. I would play. When I took the, the garbage can lid, the tin garbage can that would always get crushed and, <laughs> and put it on my arm and say, I'm Captain America. Yeah. Or I would take my favorite blanket, put it on me, and say, I'm Superman. I would take my father's regular day um, um, hardware store hammer, and I'm Thor. It was me making believe. I can't be these guys. So let me make believe. I'm running through the house. I'm Batman, Superman. My mother was like, no, not in my house, you ain't. You jump like that again. I'm beating your ass. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So Superman go cower in his bedroom, and then... Jump again and drive his mom's crazy. And did you, was the fantasy you had, Daryl, that you wanted to live in the, the world of the, of the comic books? The comic books made my reality safe. I actually became the mighty Thor. Why did that collection mean so much to you? Why was it so important to you? Mm -hmm. The comic books, it was the only place where I saw smart people, educated, who were powerful. Spider-Man, living in Queens, Peter Parker, awkward, nerdy, trying to figure life out, but he's Spider-Man, he's smart. Tony Stark's smart. Bruce Wayne, smart. Or Reed Richards, smart. Only time I saw smart people who were looked up upon as cool was in the comic books because in my world they didn't exist. But uh, I started with second grade, I started with tracing paper. Um, tracing is just rehearsal. Yeah. I'm tracing a hundred times and by the hundred and first time I don't need it. I could just look at the cover. I'm talking about in second grade. I could look at a cover. That's how Daryl got a reputation for being... That, that made me cool as a nerd and a geek. Because now the bullies would say, yo, D, can you do the cover for my, my school report? 
<laughs> so now, oh, he's not picking on me. He likes me. Yeah, but yeah. as soon as I give it to him, he smacks me in my head and takes my money. <laughs> and um, Stan Lee, rest in peace, he was brilliant because he really put his superheroes in New York in City. New York. Yeah. New York was a character in those Marvel comic books. Brilliant, brilliant thing, Stan Lee. So when I read a Marvel comic book, it wasn't make-believe to me. It was real. Because now I'm seeing Hell's Kitchen. I'm seeing Harlem. I'm seeing the Lower East Side. Peter Parker was from I'm Queens. I'm seeing, right, exactly. So every time I looked at a Marvel comic book, I was getting a geography lesson and an actual real time of what was going on in New York. And did you, were you often meeting those places for the first time in the comic books? Yes. Versus going there yourself. Yes, I couldn't. You were imagining the block. Right. Yeah. The first time I saw the uh, Roosevelt Island tram was in Spider-Man. Comic books were Daryl's eyes and ears, his looking glass to other worlds, but also to his own city of New York. They also were his prized possessions, and in making a ritual out of going to the local drugstore to buy the latest issues week after week, he amassed a crazily good collection that had all the big titles and was one of the biggest in the neighborhood. It also had real value, making him and his brother kings of comic books. But in the late 1970s, his brother said it was time for a different plan. There was a new sound coming to the neighborhood from the Bronx, and all their friends wanted to be DJs. And so they better learn how to spin records, too. But how to get a set of turntables? To Daryl's brother, the answer seemed obvious. So we had this huge collection of comic books. And my brother's like, you, we got to get equipment, too. Here's what we're going to do. And I remember when he said that, I kind of felt, I was sitting there like, no, don't say what I think you're about to say. We're going to do a comic book sale, and we're going to sell some of our comic books so we could get equipment. So those comic books, it broke my heart because you're selling the only thing that I could connect myself to this so-called real world. So for me, when I sold my comic books, I sold my existence. Do you remember what the hardest issue was with, to part with that you, when you sold? That you were really, oh, when, that, when someone came and knocked on the door and bought this one. Oh, it was... You know, um, it, it broke you. Oof. All my Captain Americas, all my Captain Americas. There was something about Steve Rogers. It was something about Captain America that attracted to me. And I didn't know I would become this when I found my career. Because even at this stage of my career, I have nothing against this generation. But using negativity as a force for success, being ignorant, ignorant is is a worse word than saying the F word mm -hmm. or the B word, because it's ignorant. So Captain America was frozen in ice. Then he woke up 50 years later in this whole new world of America where people were doing this crazy stuff. He had to fight this to what was in his heart, what was on his heart. That's why I always respect him, mm. you know what I'm saying? I remember one time my brother teased me um, and said, You'll never have blonde hair like Steve Rogers because you're not white. And he said that to me. I forgot. I'll never forget. My mother had the key. I remember I tried to get a kitchen knife and stab him because you're disrespect. I didn't. I thought he was disrespecting Steve Rogers, mm -hmm. but deep down he was disrespecting me. I'll yes. never forget that he said that. Yeah. So there's a lot of things to these superheroes that I didn't know that was connected with me. That's why I was so emotionally connected to them. And Daryl, did you ever try to buy back your collection? No. Once it was it, gone, it was gone. Once it was gone, it was gone. 
and it hurt, but the distraction was we got the turntables yeah. in, me and my brother. I hold on to the values that first brought me into hip hop when I was 15 years old. Stan Lee it was brilliant because he taught me in life define yourself with an adjective and tell the world who you are. For instance, the amazing Spider-Man. Mild-mannered Daryl McDaniels, when he gets on this mic, is no longer mild-mannered Catholic school kid. He transformed into the devastating mic control. Dick. Runner J knew they were being famous. To me, all of this was make-believe. Still play. But what happened was, Run DMC forums. Um, Jason Darrell and, J and J um, Jason Mizell, Jam Master J, um, Joseph Simmons, DJ Run, and, and um, um, Darrell McDaniels, DMC. Before we made our move, there was something that needed to be fixed because Jay was Jazzy J. Jazzy J is the DJ with Red Alert in Africa Bambada and the Zulu Nation and Sonic Force. You cannot be a copycat. Like, copycat is, is a word everybody can relate to. You can't be a copycat. And that was like in a generation up to the 70s. In the 80s. Originality is what you want. Yeah, originality. In the 80s, we created this word called biting. You're biting my style. So it's basically be a copycat. One of the golden rules is you can't copy, look, sound. You cannot do, can't have the same name. Don't worry, Jay. I have imagination. I got you. So I went home and I was like, okay, you got Grandmaster Flash, Grandmaster Kaz. Grand Wizard Theodore, Grand Mixer, you got all these two grands, it's, everything's the same. I know what I'm gonna do. The jam meant two things in hip hop. The jam was the actual party. Yo, that jam last night was amazing. But the jam was also the record. At that jam last night, they played my favorite jam. So I was like, he's not gonna be, um, he can't be um 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 he can't be Jazzy J. He don't need to be Grandmaster. He don't need to be Grand Wizard. He don't need to be Grand Mixer. He will be the Jam Master J. First of all, the wordplay is Jam Ma Jam Master J. It's powerful. Mm -hmm. But Jam Master J means he's the master of the whole DJ thing. He masters the party. He's like Doctor Strange. He controls the party and he controls the most powerful records. So I'll run to Jay now. I got it, Jay. You ready? Drum roll. Do, 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 do. You're gonna be the Jam Master Jay. And I remember Jay, oh, Jam Master. Yo, that got a nice ring too. Within just a few years, Daryl had gone from a kid drawing superheroes on tracing paper to turning his band into comic book heroes. To Daryl, playing DMC and run DMC was something he did on the side though, way outside of school. It was a pretend thing. It wasn't real. So in making the transition from Catholic school to St. John's University, Daryl continued keeping music over here and his real life being a student over here. Meanwhile, his bandmate, Joseph Simmons, was racing ahead. He knew what he wanted out of the music business and how to get it. And when it came to Rum DMC, he was all in. Prior to us putting the records out, Run was always calling me. Yo, Russell went to this, Russell's getting us lawyers, like all this music set. 
I'm listening, but cool, Joe, yeah, okay, yeah. But I'm thinking, I got school tomorrow. I'm trying to figure life out. I'm trying to be like these, this, this DJ guy, same way I was trying to be Captain America. You're putting a costume on. Right. My thing was, what I'm doing puts me in a room with Melly Mel. Like, Ron can understand. Yo, D, you killing the whole world right now, and you still loving Melly you're Mel. Yes! Up to your superheroes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I'm putting that suit on, and everybody said, because I took it forever. I had the glasses. Yeah, yeah. Like, my outfits Leather looked... coat. Yeah, and the gloves. gloves. Like, I took it seriously, because... It does feel like a Peter Parker story, because That's... you're going to St. John's, you're a college student by day, and then by night, you're grabbing these headlines um, in the city. Exactly. Sort of like he was Spider-Man in the city. But in Queens, he was a high school student. Yep. Yeah, so exactly. you're Mild-mannered. I understand right. those so words. So you sort of have these compartmentalized lives. And I was yep. going to ask you about when you first started hearing the world of Run DMC come into your other world. Yeah, for people, St. John's had a place called the Rapskeller where... It was like the lunchroom. In between classes, that's where you go. Pizza, burgers, chips, sit at the table, talk to your friends, get your soul to do your whatever, whatever. It was the hangout. So I'm sitting there one day going like this. I got to grow up. This college stuff is crazy because nobody helps you. I'm on my own. Then I realized I went to school for business management because Douglas Hayes told me to. I started taking all these classes, bookkeeping, accounting, and realized I don't like business management. So I'm sitting there going, what am I going to do with my life? In the ref scale, going, huh, I can draw. I can do anything that has to do with drawing. Architecture, maybe. Graphic design. Worst come to worst. True story. I'll drop out of college and I'll draw the funnies in the local newspaper. I thought that's how it went. I could just create a character and I'll draw the funnies. Not thinking that rap was a, a real career right. at this point. Yeah. So sitting there over the, the um, intercom, the whole, like those, those speakers in the ceiling mm -hmm. in the rap scale, where they would play the radio or the, um, the college DJ guy would play his little playlist or something. Boom, tet, 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 two years ago. A friend of, and I'm sitting in my room. Man, I gotta go home and tell my mother and father I'm dropping out of school. I'm gonna do art. I'm gonna do the, the draw the funnies. I figure maybe I'll just get in regular rap. So I'm here until I look up and the whole lunchroom is dancing. And the people like like right over there is going, because everybody knew who Africa Bambada was. Planet Rock was huge. Curtis Blow, the breaks was huge. Um, the message was huge. Um, um, Spoonie G was huge. Everybody knew. Then, who are these guys? Yo, I heard these guys are from Queens. So I'm hearing, yo, this is the best hip-hop song we ever heard. Best rap song we ever heard. So you would think I would get up, yo, yo, that's my record. Ooh, that's me. I didn't do that. I looked and I was like, I said this. That ain't going to last. So I went home dejectedly. Mom, Dad, there's um, something that I need to tell y'all. Um, I don't think I want to do business management. Huh? Now it gets interesting. Huh? Come here and sit down and this and that. Well, I don't like book bookkeeping and this and that. And I'm thinking about um, changing my major to something like, you know, architecture or graphic design or whatever. And, you know, if that don't work out, I think I'll just go get a job at the local newspaper and, and draw <laughs> and the funny papers. My father, I love them. Rest in peace. My mother, oh, hell no. You get your ass.
ass back upstairs and you get in and I'm down. They scream. And my, I let my father come. Woman, calm down, woman. I just said my father said, look, as long as the boy doing what he wants to make happy. I was like, yeah, see what that. She was like, hell no, we ain't paying all this money for whatever, whatever. So now I'm going to um, St. John's and I'm depressed. Um, I started drinking. I would hang out on Hollis Avenue some days, like on, this was like, when I had class on Wednesday that I would cut, and a class on Friday that I just wouldn't go to. And I remember a couple of days I'm standing, cause I would have to wait. Damn, it's 11, I can't go home till 1.30. Because I got to act like I'm going to class. And I remember I would be, it happened like two times. I was standing in front of the game room on Hollis Avenue, 200 Street and Hollis Avenue. I was standing in front of the game room trying to waste time so I could go home and act like I went to school. And twice it happened, I saw Run. Because he was going to LaGuardia Community College at the time. And I would see Run on the back of the bus and I would wave and he would wave and stuff like that. So he's looking at me, probably thinking I got a day off or I don't have a class. He didn't know what I was doing. So I'm there, I'm on, and I'm standing there, I'm drinking and I'm drinking. And then, <laughs> this is funny too. So I'm, I'm doing that, and then Joe calls my house one day. Yo, Russell got us a record deal. We on profile records, this and that, boom, bang. Um, Red Alert's going to play our record. Red Alert was on um, um, 98.7 Kiss. Had started hip-hop. Hip-hop show Friday and Saturday night in New York City in the early 80s. I tell kids this, they can't believe that. Hip-hop was only on the radio two nights a week for three hours. What? Like, they couldn't believe that. So Run is like, yo, they're going to play our record. Yeah, Joe, whatever, whatever. Cool. I'm depressed. I'm cutting school. This and my mother's going to come wasting their money. I, I just didn't know mm. what to do. Mm -hmm. So... Sure enough, Friday night, I remember Friday night, it was like 8.30, um, DJ Red Alert, Joe calls my house. D, go turn the radio on, Red Alert going to play the record. So I'm like, okay, cool. So I'm sitting, I remember sitting on my bed in Hollister's room. Uh, my brother had a two-speaker boombox, Samuel. So I turned it to, um, to, to kiss And, um... The record comes on and I hear it. They play us like that. I hated it. Cause I hate the way I I hate the way that I, I wanna listen to Melly Mel. I wanna listen to Bambada and Kobo D. I, I just it just sounded weird to me on the radio. So the next the very no, it was about two or three weeks later, Joe calls, depack your bags. We're going on the road, we got a show. I hung up the phone and I realized something. I never told my parents I made a record. When I went to the Green Street Recording Studio that Sunday that Joe came and got me, yo, we're gonna pick you up at 2.30. We made a like that at Circumcise. I didn't get home till like one in the morning. Mm. But you're usually on a Sunday. Early, yeah. My mother and father went, boy, where you was at? I didn't say I went to the studio. I said I was in Joe Attic. Cause after me and Joe would go in my basement, when he got turntables, you could find me and Joe either in my basement doing the DJ rap thing, 
on Joe's attic. So I'm like, um, I was at Joe's attic. So now I got this record that's out. The, the St. John's just gave they me confirmation. Oblivious. Now Red Alert just <clears> play it. Now Joe's saying, we're going on the road to perform it in North Carolina. My mother's going to kill me. So I had to go downstairs and say, Mom, um, there's something I need to tell y'all. Remember that night I came home one in the morning in August of 82? Yeah, well, I actually was in the studio. Um, <laughs> we got this record. I said, you know um, Planet Rock and the message? Yeah, I have one of those. I mean, imagine trying to tell your mom. Oh, wow. The thing we did in the basement when we was um, scratching with your, your mixing DJ. My father, was, he was a, yeah, the DJ mixing thing. Um, Red alert, my father, because my father worked with Transit. Right. So the young people, when he was at work on a Friday and Saturday night, Doing the eight to twelve shift, what were the young kid? What were the young workers playing? The hip hop show. So he said, "Yeah, I know Chuck Chill Out, and I know um, Red Alert, and I know Mr. Magic. I've heard of them." My mother, she was oblivious to that. She just started cursing me out, this and that. So I'm like, "Your run is gonna kill me." Then I thought about it. Um, run had said, "Yo, um, we gonna do these shows. We're gonna be making twelve hundred to fifteen hundred a night." It's a lot of money, fresh out of high school. 1500 that's probably what? 18, 19 years old, that's amazing. Come on, that's probably $300 when we split it, $300 a show. So I went downstairs and said, Ma, here's the deal. Let me do this show, and whatever shows that I have this summer, see, I'm not even thinking, whatever shows we do this summer, whatever money I'll make, I'll use to pay my tuition. They had their little sideboard, or you could go. You can make a deal. Because they were paying my yeah, tuition at St. Yeah, John's. Yeah, expensive, yeah. So my mother and father let me go do that first show with Joe. When we was doing the after-hour shows in New York City, I never told my mother I had a record. I, Joe would just say, you'll be at my house at 4.30. So we would go to the sh show, do the after-hour show. I was back home by 8. So I Again, never told them, I never, it's blowing it's your mind. Like, I never like told them <laughs> studio and records and this and that. I just did it in the basement and then did it sneak and did it. And, and that was one of my bad habits too growing up. I would always get in trouble because I wouldn't communicate with my parents. So I had to say, the only reason they let me go is I'm going to use whatever money I make. I might make, um, you know, $4,000 this summer. Use it it's to my tuition. Yeah. When, so when would you say you finally felt like an adult and that this was the path you were on? In other words, that it felt real. Oh, it was a long time. It took a long time. So you really became, this is who I am. This is what I'm doing. Versus well, right. this, this is a sidebar over here. It, it was weird. <clears throat> now that I think about it, it was weird. I never came home and talked about what we did on the road. I never invited my parents to it. For me, it was like, I would come off, like we would go to, we would do North Carolina Friday, come home Saturday, Sunday we drive to Boston. We played the tri-state area. The, the majority of our shows in those years, North Carolina was like a pack your chore. Yeah. Because you leave in the States. We yeah. played that, came back home. After that initial show, the majority of our shows was Connecticut, Jersey, D.C., in um, Philly. Mm -hmm. And I'm talking about Friday night, three shows, Connecticut, Jersey, Philly, Boston. Saturday night, three shows. We was in that Cadillac room. We was getting, and the money was just coming in. 
I never, I would come home, unpack, it was like my To your parents' home. house? Yeah, I was still, still in your home. parents' house, in that same room that you were talking about. That where they were, same room. <laughs> here you I, go by the bathroom. Yeah, I would just give them the money and they would put it in a bank for me. Wow. And then over, where are you going next? But I would never, I never sat down and we never, t- they never asked me and about And when did stuff. you make the decision to leave St. John's? Like, this, this is it. I'm gonna, I, um, I can't the do this. St. John's was um, third semester. So fall of second I had to take second. a leave of absence, though. Okay. So you could come, the doors open. You could it come was, back. look, timing was everything. I didn't have to go, Ma, I'm, I've been failing classes and I've been cutting, things just started happening. You know, the, 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 um, the, the shows was happening, Connecticut, whatever, this and that. So, but it's weird. Now that I look back, it was just so weird. At that point, it was no different from when I was in high school. It was like I was going to do this and just coming home. And it, I, I never brought any of the elements of this new crazy thing that I'm doing. I would just come home, giving them money. But it was the third semester where we started getting booked during the regular school years. So I'm like, and my, my parents was against it. But then again, I said, Mom, whatever money. So she said... Take a leave of absence. That means you're not dropping out. You're taking a leave of absence and you're gone. I took a leave of absence from St. John's and been absent ever since. (laughs) That leave may have made Daryl absent at college, but it made him present as a participant in one of the true watersheds in music history, the hip-hop revolution of the early 1980s, and in particular, the marriage of rap and hard rock that gave Run DMC a sound that sent them flying. I remember... I was in elementary school at the time, and their music was everywhere in my town. From the school bus, to friends' basements, to the radio stations playing at the local mall. Now in the group, Daryl was known as DMC, which stood for Devastating Mic Control. He also was called the King of Rock. And with Jam Master Jay at center stage manning the turntables, DMC and Joseph Run Simmons commanded our attention with their black leather jackets, godfather hats, and in Daryl's case, a pair of black rimmed glasses that set him apart. When they performed, rock met rap, and the sound was loud and proud. And within just a few years, really, Run DMC went from a sideshow in Daryl's life to the main event, earning him money and fame and a ride on a rocket ship that would land the group an Adidas deal, VIP treatment on MTV, and eventually a place in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Remember the rebirth of the Aerosmith song Walk This Way in 1986? That was them. I didn't know I was famous until after Raising Hell, where I started paying it. Yeah, after Walk This Way is when I knew what Mick Jagger felt like that. Prior to Raising Hell, I could drive in my Cadillac and get noticed. When Raising Hell come out, I'm causing accidents on the park right now, because now I'm famous, I'm a celebrity now. See, it was a difference. I never saw myself as famous, and I damn sure don't see myself as a celebrity. But then, when Raising Hell came out, people saw us on Rockbox, but I could still go somewhere dressed like DMC and not everybody know, only the people that know. Only the people that got MTV would know, too, because remember, MTV wasn't everywhere. Right. We didn't even have MTV in Queens. <laughs> it was only in Manhattan. <laughs> so I would go to Manhattan, now these Manhattan people know me. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Or, unless you had the album, you wouldn't know. The cassette, you wouldn't know. 
when Raising Hell came out, now the lady who never heard my music saw my face on every news, on the cover of... Oh, it was everywhere. You know what I'm saying? So, was, so now I'm a celebrity. Yeah. So that, 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 that was the difference for me. And Joe, he already had three kids. So he would, we would tour and stuff like that. We would tour for two, three weeks. And Joe would go home. He's, he's home with his wife and kids during that time. Me and Jay come off the road. Jay didn't have kids yet, but me and Jay come off the road. We come off the road. We go into Hollis. And then us and the Hollis crew, we go on and dance at Terrell. We go into the world. We go into um, the Peppermint Lounge. We're going to the Disco Fever. We're going to the Roxy. Mm -hmm. So for us, even in our fame, now we're, fame, we, we're doing the Madonna scene now. What made it easy for us was me and Jay, we always had the same kids from the neighborhood with us. So it wasn't like I was coming to Manhattan hanging out with people I never hang out just because I'm famous. You weren't alone. Not like St. John's. Alone. You had right. a crew with you. Friends. Exactly. People you trusted. Yep. But from 84 to 89, on the I road. was always on the road. Changed the world. Adidas deal. Changed the world. So in 89, everybody, I'm talking about the whole world, like how we looked at, we just had Flash, Rappers Delight, Curtis Blow, and Bambada to look up, which gave birth to Run DMC in those short couple of years, Ooh. 79 to 82. So now, from 84 to 89, Run DMC got EPMD, Eminem, everybody, to, when rap exploded the in the 90s. expanded. Right. Yeah. So in the 90s, what happened? We're well-respected. We're the pioneers, we're the OGs. Uh, we are hip-hop. When you say hip-hop, they don't even got to write about it. It's show Run DMC. Oh, I'll get it. Right? But in the 90s, Pac, Biggie, all of these talents, Cypress Hill, Ice Cube, NW, and all made, of this yeah. comes out. So we're not the only ones anymore. So in ni from 90 to 93, we were celebrated, but nobody cared anymore. But we were respected. In 1993, um, this, this producer... DJ named Pete Rock, who was in one of the hottest groups of the 90s, Pete Rock and CL Smooth, produced a song called Down With The King for us. Down With The King did for Run DMC what people say Walk This Way did for Aerosmith. It brought us back. In 93, Down With The King put us back on MTV, back on the road, back on the charts. I remember. We was opening for Naughty by Nature. We was opening for um, Tribe Called Quest. We was opening for De La Soul. We was opening for ZZ Top. We was opening for Marilyn Manson. We was opening wow. for Limp Bizkit. We yeah. was opening <clears throat> for everybody. So now we could go on our own tour. Down with the King was a chart success. Right then that day, I felt like I felt when I was in um, St. John. I just got depressed. It just got to the point where I said, I'm uncomfortable with this feeling, I'm going to kill myself. And people know, D, how the hell, the question from Eric and Ron and Jay was, 
How the hell can you be depressed? Your DMC, <laughs> DMC, but none of that meant nothing. It was just something in me until I got to that point where um, it wasn't I went to therapy till my therapist told me. She said, your whole life, throughout your music, you was trying to define who you were. And she said, even in your music, all of your major rhymes started with the great I am. I am the king of rock. I am the son of Bifred. I am DMC in the place to be. I am the microphone man. I was like, what? And I was writing all of these little stories, you know, to be, to, to, to. Then I thought about it. I want the world to know who Daryl is. I don't want to die and he be talking about what Run D, Run D and Jay did. I want the world to know Daryl. And I want the world. Like I Steve, to, right? You were saying before, but. Captain America, you want them to know Steve. I want them to know me. Yeah. Hey world, I'm DMC from the groundbreaking rap group Run DMC. This is how that first book was going to open. What's up world, I'm Daryl McDaniels. You know me, DMC from the groundbreaking rap group Run DMC. First to go gold, first to go platinum, first on the cover of Rolling Stone, first with the sneaker deal. Everything that hip hop is doing, they say it's because of me running Jay. But I'm really just Daryl McDaniels from Hollis, Queens, New York. No different from any boy or girl on the face of the world. My birthday is May 31st, 1964. Oh, I know my birthday, but I don't know no details about it. So innocently, I called my mom and said, Mom, I'm writing this book. I know my birthday is May 31st, 1964. Just to make it more interesting for the reader, I want to know three things. How much did I weigh? What hospital? What time? She tells, tells me those three things. Hang up the phone. Hour later, the phone rings. It's my mother and my father. They just sent me with this. We have something else to tell you. Okay, what is it? I thought it was going to be something like, um... Well, when you was born, there was a power outage in the hospital and we gave birth to you by candlelight. Something like that. They hit me with this. We have something else to tell you. Okay, what it is. You was a month old when we brought you home and you're adopted, but we love you. Bye. Click. It was a traumatic, life-changing, soul-crushing, emotional, spiritual um, catastrophe. What's so interesting about what you were talking about is you had kept a secret from them about recording Run DMC initially. See, and you had to have this big conversation with them about, look, I'm coming clean. That night I was, that day I was out, I was really recording. That's real funny. They I had a secret from you that you both were keeping something from each other is for your that own the, reasons. That's crazy. Is that that little division of separation that just exists because of the situation? For me, it was exactly like... um. Clark, there's something in your father and you. You came here on a spaceship. <laughs> what? But also, did it did it cause you, or has it caused you, to look at all those memories that we've shared? Do they feel mediated in some way by this truth that you know? You know, I, you, you have such clear memories of all of these things. Every but, every. But yet you know this thing. other thing is you could have grown up in Staten Island. Where your birth mother Exactly was. right. Right. That's crazy. There'd be no Run DMC. You know? If what be... happened to me didn't happen, I would have never met Run and Jay. 
Definitely not. Hip hop would have happened, but it wouldn't happen the way that it did. That's what Buster Rhymes said. If you, what happened to you didn't happen in hip hop, this hip hop shit wouldn't happen the way that it happened. Somebody else would have did it late, but it was crazy. Yeah, you'd be a Staten Island guy. So, you know, for me, it was like, I didn't get mad at my mother and father until I met, I didn't get mad at my mother and father until I met other adoptees. Prior to that time, it was a big shock, but then I calmed down and said, yo, but I look at my life. You know what I'm saying? There's a book called The Primal Wound that says when these babies are given up from their birth mothers, something happens. Something spiritual, something and physical. And being, being a parent yourself, you can relate to you it. I'm, relate I'm to a new that. parent myself. You can relate to it. You yeah. can definitely relate yeah. to it. So the book just basically says we're too young. We can't go, what are you doing? What are you giving me to these people? What are you doing? Something happens to us. So you go into this protection mode. Let me be a good student. Let me, I'm OCD. I'm neat. Because so, somewhere in the back of my mind, the book says, I'm afraid of giving up again. So once this information came out, I, when I moved from Hollis, I moved to Freeport. When I met my wife, we got married, we moved to Bayside. And um, then from Bayside, we moved to Jersey. So now I'm living in Jersey, the secret's out. All my cousins is calling me, all my cousins younger than me. Derek, Samantha, Robin, Donnie, Heath, Craig, Troy, um, um, Antoine, everybody's calling me. Oh, D, man, you don't know, man. We've been holding this secret in for every time we would come over your house the 4th of July, every time we came over your house um, um, for Christmas, every time we came over for your birthday, your, um, your mother's Aunt Catherine or um, uh, Aunt Ensley or Uncle Griffin, everybody coming to my house from the day I was brought to my house till, till we got old and moved out, every time something happened in my house, they would sit my cousins, my cousin, um, Donnie said, we would get, come on kids, we'll get dressed, get, get your sneakers on, we're going over to McDaniel's family, everybody come sit down, what's the rule? The little kids, nobody let Daryl know he's adopted. They kept it. So now all my cousins, my cousin Tim from Dallas, Daryl, her aunt Banner just told you, man, we held this in for it. So they all calling me, so now I'm living with them, I'm living with them, I'm living with that. So it's all feet feeding me up and... I come home, and um, I'm in a car, and I'm thinking of killing myself, and on the radio comes the Sarah McLachlan record, um, Arms of the Angel. When I heard that record, that was the only thing that made me say, it's going to be Hang on. Right. Yeah. Hang on. I was going to ask you, um, finding out at 35 that you were adopted, mm -hmm. we started out earlier talking about your mm -hmm. love of comic books. 
Did you, even in those darkest days of being depressed and, and feeling like what just happened, did you feel that your passion for those characters when you were a kid was prophetic because you had the same sort of origin story? Because I can't think of a, of a superhero that doesn't have an extraordinary uh, backstory. Right. No, I didn't at all. I didn't see myself, I saw myself pretending to be them. There's a lot of things to these superheroes that I didn't know that was connected with me. That's why I was so emotionally connected to them. Most superheroes are adopted. I was gonna say, it was almost prophetic. Right. Your interest. Superman, um, Clark, there's something we need to tell you. You're not really one of us. You're not from huh? Spider, Superman, Spider-Man, and Batman. What's, and Tony Stark's, what's common about? They all lost their parents. My whole career was always son of Bifrit, brother of Al, Banner's my mother, runs my pal. It's McDaniels, not McDonald's. These rhymes are Daryl's, those burgers are Ronald's. I ran down my family tree, my mother, my father, my brother, and me. Those were the most important things to me ever. Christmas time in Hollis, Queens. It was always something about not being the DMC. DMC with the great, I mean, I had my rhymes about me, but my, my most powerful statements was about the thing Your people. that I cherish right from Hollis. Yeah. To find out what? And that means, what do you mean and why? Okay, why did my birth mother give me up? Why, why, why? So all of these questions came up, which was crazy. So think about it like this. Everybody asks me, why do you think they never told you? Because they love me. But I also never gave them a chance to tell me why. From kindergarten to eighth grade, I could see a scene where my father's sitting there reading the paper, my mother's at the sink washing the dishes, and she turns to, honey, do you think we should tell Daryl now? He's getting ready to go to high school. Nah, don't tell him this could ruin him. He's doing so good. Like a no See, they treat they want to treat you normal, but they treat you abnormal so you can be normal by doing that, they're not treating you normal. He's doing so well not this could kill. They didn't want to give me my truth. Not knowing I need my truth. So my father goes, nah, let's not tell him yet. So I go to high school. Ninth grade to 10th, I get swept to St. John's University. Same scene, honey, do you think we should tell him? I don't think we should tell him that. Then it gets in again anyway. Yeah, I think so. He's a man now. He's going to school. I think we would tell him. But now he's going on the road. No, nah, don't tell him. It was never the right time for that conversation called You're Adopted. But once they'd had it, Daryl found himself reliving moments from when he was that little boy growing up in Hollis and discovering New York City, his city, in the pages of Marvel Comics. In one case, he remembered discovering something from the back seat of his parents' car that unlocked another memory that was even more momentous. My mother and father officially adopted me at five years old. So I think I was five years old. I remember always going over um, the bridges into the, into the city and I would always be in rooms like this with, with these, those books like those, mm -hmm. but filled with them. When I look back at it, my adopted friend said, D, that was the lawyer's office. That, that was probably your mother and father going to finalize it. I just remember being in big leather chairs and rooms filled with volumes yeah, of books. That's exactly what it was. It was the, the lawyer's office. 
But I remember one of those trips, we was going over the 59th Street Bridge. And I'm sitting in the back seat, I'm five years old. My father's driving and my mother's driving. I mean, my mother's in the passenger seat. And I remember I got short of breath. <laughs> my mother's a nurse. She heard me breathing for and she turns around. She said, well, what's the matter with you? And I couldn't get it up. <laughs> what? To speak? What? What's the matter? So my father, I told you the boy's crazy. <laughs> I'm thinking, he's thinking, do I want to adopt this kid? I'll never forget this day. This is a true story. I told you, he didn't say it like that, but I could tell, but no, I want to think. I told you the boy's crazy, you know, that he draws in the, like, I was just thinking that. So, I'm, I can't get, what's the matter, what's the speak, 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 speak. And I remember my brother, he used to get car sick, but he wasn't with us this day. Um, and I go, mommy, it does exist. And she, she says, what? And I remember being five years, it was the first time I saw the Roosevelt Island tram in real life. And it just bugged me like that. It's and my mother, she just laughed at her. But I never, and I remember since. So even to this day, when I'm coming in the city, every time I see the rover driving train, that experience comes to life to me. Mm. I was pretending to be. I was, and I speak to kids about that. I would always get teased, except when I was needed. You into that corny make-believe bullshit. But make believe is it I was pretending to be the king of rock, but now wherever I go, even to this day, I can leave here now and see Method Man, I can see Little Wayne, I can see Little Kim, I can see Red Alert, I could see um anybody in the music business. And I'm talking about not just rappers. And they'll go, yo, what's up, King? And I was pretending, I was just playing, but was I? took the secret to make me realize now when I look back on that I was already that including the fact that where do I come from Queens who's my guy in Queens Peter Parker Spider-Man what is he a superhero where did the superheroes that impact my life come from where was Avengers Mansion New York City so um, I got a I got a rhyme now where I say my make-believe is your reality I'm everything I pretend to be. Everything I need is inside of me, and anything else is the enemy. That song's coming out very good. Beautiful. Here's my last question for you. It's the way I end every interview, Daryl. Just get this open. So, another great New York poet, Walt Whitman, mm. many, many years ago, wrote this book, Leaves of Grass, Song of Myself, in it, and my favorite passage from it uh, is what I want to end on and ask you about. <clears throat> Walt Whitman says, I bequeath myself to the dirt to grow from the grass I love. If you want me again, look for me under your boot soles. You will hardly know who I am or what I mean, but I shall be good health to you nevertheless and filter and fiber your blood. Failing to fetch me at first, keep encouraged. Missing me one place, search another. I stop somewhere waiting for you. And I want to end by asking you if we could project, project out 50, 100, 200 years from now and people come along and want to learn about Daryl McDaniels or the King of Rock <laughs> um, and want to retrace your footsteps and want to commune with you and your spirit, where should they look for you in your hometown? 
Wow, where should they look for me in my hometown? That's a crazy question. Where should they, dang. Like right now, a hundred years from now, where should they look for me? They want to know you. Who was this guy? Where can I go look for him and feel his spirit, his story? You know what? Go look for, and you don't see him like they used to, but I know it'll be one out there. Go look for the little kid playing outside by himself or the little kid in the backyard playing by himself. That's where you'll find me. Beautiful. Let's let it lie there. Daryl McDaniels, thank you so much for taking me to your thank hometown. You. Do you just, your questions were amazing. Well, it was, it was, this is Because you, no, you started therapying on me because this is connected with you. When you said the things that happened to me, I didn't even look at that. I learned something about myself. Well, I just today. listened. I listened. These things are crazy. Your Hometown is a Kevin Burke production. For more, please visit our website at yourhometown.org. And when you're there, don't miss the art, including illustrated scenes and a hand-drawn map of the landmarks Daryl mentioned as key to his story. You can also follow us on your favorite podcast app and on social media on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And please check out the show's New York City series page, including information on live events on the Museum of the City of New York's website at mcny.org slash your hometown. Now, I'd really like to thank the amazing team that helped to make this episode of Your Hometown with me, especially our executive producer, Robert Krowich, art director, Nick Gregg, editor and sound designer, Otis Streeter, composer, performer, Sterling Steffen, and our brilliant researcher, Shaquille Khan. I'd also like to thank our musical consultant, Henry Pearson, for his work throughout the development of the show. Our branding and website design is by Tama Creative, and our social media team is led by Cure and Jessica Sambear. A special thanks, too, to our partners this season, the Museum of the City of New York. I'm also deeply grateful to the Rockefeller Brothers Fund and our other financial supporters for their commitment to this series. Until next time, thanks so much for taking this ride with me. And remember, everyone's from someplace, and everywhere is somewhere.